Welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shout outs, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Fracture Line. I think this is episode number 724. We'll, we'll be at 1,000 soon. We'll have a party when that happens. Joined today by our usual, very capable co-host, Sarah Ann Whitbeck and Zach Bauman. And I, it's my distinct pleasure to introduce our guest today, and it's Dr. Gina Shira from Phoenix, who's a CWIS stalwart and a good friend of the pod and all of us. And we're delighted you're here. Gina, will you just give us a brief bio and just tell us where you're at, what you're doing, and what you're passionate about. Thank you for having me and thinking of me. It's my pleasure to be here hanging out with such a great crew. I am in the lovely state of Arizona. I work down here at a level one trauma center in Honor Health. I've been at this institution for eight years and uh, my training was down here in Arizona as well. I trained in uh, critical care and also burn surgery, so part of my practice is a lot of wound care and skin grafting, um, but the other part of my practice is uh, pushing forward uh, the care for chest wall trauma and rib fractures is my passion. I come from the great state of Wisconsin, so <laughs> I try my best to get up there in the summer months, Milwaukee. That's why I'm so cool. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how you got into chest wall repair. I think I know this story, but let's, let's share it with our viewers. Yeah, actually, I was trained at a program that did not buy into, I'll call it, uh, rib fixation. And um, mind you, you know, my training, I guess, would be about 10 years ago. But throughout the entirety of the training, I only ever saw one attempt at rib fixation. But it was a suture repair, no plating used. And so uh, it was it was very frowned upon and it was taught to me that this wasn't a, a good option. And so I, I never learned it, I never appreciated it, and my treatment was that uh, pain control, pain meds, and follow-up outpatient. And then I came to work with uh, Alicia Mangrum and Dr. Ali Osman and Dr. Suker, who I think shortly before I came had started, uh, with your help, doing rib fixation here at Honor Health. So I was not a believer in the beginning, uh, but my competitive spirit wouldn't allow uh, my colleagues to do a surgery without me knowing how to do it too. So uh, I started learning it, I started understanding a little bit more about it, and then I started becoming, pretty early on, pretty quickly, I started realizing how impactful this surgery is to people. And I didn't want to just live off of anecdotes, but it was so profound to me that I quickly became a believer. And so I would scour the world for rib fractures and, and chase down people and, and find people who met what I felt were indications and then work within CWIS to find a lot of like-minded people and have modified and learned a ton from all of these people like from through CWIS. That really has changed what my passion is in my practice. Everyone knows if there's a fracture within the entire Honor Health system, Shira better know about it. <laughs> yes. So that's kind of my story. I have this vision of a, a big man-eating shark that's named Ali Osman, and he's chewing up rib fracture cases, and little pieces are spinning out of his mouth, and you're like that little lamprey eel that comes along and feeds off of that. That's probably how it was in the early days, I'm guessing. How did you, yes. how did you rest a case or two away from that guy? 
Well, one of my favorite humans, by the way. Yes. No, no. In in the beginning, as we were learning how to modify the procedure together and learning how to get good at it and be comfortable, we co-scrubbed on just about every case. So it wasn't really a competition per se uh, in the beginning. But then over time, the competition ensued. And then it was who could get the patient to the OR fastest. <laughs> so we would chart stock. We would be up in the middle of the night. We would try to pay the residents separately to inform us first, borrow, beg, and steal. But yeah, we had very healthy, competitive spirit to be able to do the right thing for these patients. And, and it's turned out great. Yeah, it's fantastic. You made an interesting comment there that I want to ask you a question. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where we'll start to say, oh, do you guys remember those good old days when we used to manage rib fractures non-operatively? Tom, do you think you'll see that day? <laughs> Oh, ouch. That's the obligatory one foot in the grave comment. Thank you, Zach. I couldn't resist. The dark ages weren't that long ago. I mean, they really, you described a decade ago when someone was repairing a case with suture. That was well after plates were available, but they just weren't widely I known. I can tell I mean, you a few not... centers I know that still do it that way that I've reached out to not uh, too long ago that still told me, yeah, no, we're not super interested in your organization. We're good with sutures. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go over here now with my with my research, and we'll we'll talk later. So yes, it's still done that way. Come a long ways. Still got a long ways to Indeed. go. I think we're gonna get very far in the next two to five years. I think we're going to get very far, and this is why I think that. Social media and public forums like this, accessible public forums are just the name of the game. No longer is it like, let's go back and review the literature. It's Google MD, it's those kinds of things. And I think that that's going to allow patient access to things, that's gonna change the game. And so I think CWIS has been on the right track to be able to have a lot of these things accessible to patients. And trying to figure out how to capitalize on that is, is where I think the, the biggest change is gonna be. The other thing is getting buy-in from institutions and bigger organizations that are well-respected that hospitals can then support things. I think I alluded to some emails or texts with you recently about some VATS privileging questions that were being had at my institution and reaching out to, to try to help bridge that gap between these advances that we are all appreciating in the world and knowing that things will benefit our patients, but then also addressing them from a bigger level so that our institutions will respect that we are now trained like this. A lot of us are now trained like this, and so the privileging has to progress with it. I think it has to be on both levels. I have an interesting story. I always tell this, and I find it funny, but we started doing these rib fractures in the beginning the radiologists had a hard time reading this because they, you know, they were all new to seeing these plates on ribs. And then we started using silastic tubes within the chest as opposed to a traditional chest tube. So they would early on inappropriately read JP drain malpositioned in the chest or something of the sort. <laughs> so, so we had to do a lot of education and training with our radiologists and that worked out well, but um, they're so much better at catching rib fractures and sharing and describing them better over the years and identifying hardware failures and different things. But one day I got a call from a radiologist who said I was mountain biking and I, I took a spill and I broke my clavicle in a bunch of ribs and I, and I can't breathe. And I'm over here at this hospital and they're going to fix my clavicle, but they won't fix my ribs. They said I don't 
meet criteria. So he got himself transferred over. Because he said, I read your x-rays, and I see what you do to rib fractures, and I know what you do. And so he got himself transferred over to our facility, and he will, he's come to the conferences, he will, he will uh, brag about rib fixation. But it's those little things, the more common that it's seen, the more um, obvious that people are starting to see the before and after results, it's going to pick up. That's a fantastic story. Yeah. Have any of you guys had the experience yet where a radiologist actually recommends in their report that this patient is a good candidate for fixation yeah. and it should undergo oh, that? Oh, no, I haven't got yeah, that I, one I've yet. That. That's a good one. I've had my pain specialist be like, we're not going to put in this block if they're not going to fix your ribs. <laughs> when the pain specialist throws shade at you, you really have to feel ashamed of yourself. That's fantastic. The point where... I feel like I felt a sense of, you know, maybe threshold or we had reached a threshold was when we stopped receiving so many calls from members about third party payers not paying for rib fixation. You know, in the incipient years of the organization, I received so many emails and phone calls from members saying they're calling this experimental or I'm not sure how to get this approved. Da, da, da. You know, there were just lots of questions and, and perseveration about you know, what's the documentation or what has so-and-so used or, you know, what do you have available? And I felt like that was something that I was sending out regularly that we had, you know, kind of this packet of, of things that we would send to people and that I had posted to the, the member portal. And now I can see, you know, the things that are accessed, it almost never gets accessed. Like our, our insurance approval packet never gets accessed anymore. People just don't have that same need. And I think that speaks you know, to it in and of itself. The fact that third-party payers have accepted this as it's no longer experimental. This is a standard of care. You know, once you get over that threshold with, with Medicare and other large organizations, I think that is something that really is gratifying to me to say, okay, now they're even seeing the research, you know, from that other end. So that's reassuring. Any of you think that it will reach a point sometime in the foreseeable future where a level one or level two trauma center who doesn't offer this service will be under the gun from the American College for their verification process? Or do you think be a time when there's an expectation that this be offered? And if you don't, you're not a full trauma center? I don't know when or how that would happen, but I think it's it's mandatory in the future. I mean, just like we get all our TQIP results, you shouldn't be seeing, you know, 5,000 trauma patients and have zero rib fixations. Like that should be a red flag. And I don't know how they collect that data, but we all put our rib fracture patients, you know, our injuries into trauma one or whatever system we use. We all put our surgeries in there. And if the percentage is, is exaggeratingly low, I agree that that should be something that it's at least inquired upon. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I know that some of the recent, um, some of our recent trainees that were sitting for board exams, I think they said there were as many as, one person told me they had as many as four questions on surgical stabilization as uh, of rib fixation on their board exam, which I think if it's now become, and now we're partnering with SCORE and doing a whole module with the SCORE group, you know, so if it's become part of your board certification, I, I don't think we're, you know, a far leap from it becoming part of the COT process because it feels like those things go hand in hand. If you're going to have it as part of your board certification, then it feels like it's gotta be part of your hospital certification, right? Like that those, they wouldn't be asking if individuals can do it if your 
health system isn't doing it as well. But I don't know. I'm certain that we won't, we won't be the first people to find out about it. We'll, we'll find out when big update book comes along or something. But if anyone sees it, you know, or has scuttlebutt, we would love to know the back end of that story. So if anybody's looking for a research project, or if you guys have a resident that's hungry to do something, I think a query of the trauma and critical care training programs in the U.S. would be interesting to see how many of them offer rib fixation as part of their curriculum. You know, it's funny, know. like we're on the same page with that. I was I was thinking about this just like two weeks ago. I wrote up actually something like an abstract. I have this whole abstract written because it bothers me that we have so many level one trauma centers in Arizona and that we may not be operating or, or uh, offering the same services and that we're not cross-planning and doing things. Like, you know, I, I have ECMO at my facility. Um, has anyone died at the other facilities and not transferred to an ECMO facility for trauma patients? And so, you know, same thing with rib fractures or maybe some other facilities have, you know, more advanced things. And so with specifically rib fractures, I wanted to ask that same question of my colleagues respectfully do you fix them what's your indications what's your protocols i was creating my my survey monkey to send out to my other um, level one trauma centers within arizona just to get a, a lay of the land yeah. right because i was asking myself how what percentage of people are getting fixed we ask that question all the time how many are we missing where can we improve upon as a as a whole trauma system but how would you even start put a query out to the universe of trauma centers i actually think that you would query the program directors not necessarily like trauma centers in general i would just send it like a, a mass yeah, training yeah, program. a mass communication to all the training programs and then just have them like take a survey and just you can ask them the survey like how many rib fixation cases do you approximate that your hospital does a year and then, uh, you know, how many are you graduating with or do you think you're going to graduate with or something along those lines? I think it'd be pretty straightforward and pretty uh, interesting. Another way to approach that is to ask industry. They know they know where they sell rib fixation products. They, don't, they may not share the specifics of who they sell them to or how many, but I bet you if you queried uh, Zimmer and Depew and KLS and Acumed, they might share with you which hospitals use their product that'd be another way to get at it i it was interesting I, I was talking to industry about it and it looks like a lot of the way that their marketing is going that if the hospital doesn't do a lot of rib fixation like doesn't have a program like yours gina yours tom if they don't really have like if they're not like that aggressive into it yet then the residents really drive that procedure and so they've been really been kind of targeting residents for this procedure because they they drive that procedure on the front lines and they're the ones that are going to their staff being like hey i think this guy would or this guy would really benefit from rib fixation let's do it and then you know as the staff are kind of like oh yeah i want to give you this experience as a trainee <laughs> let's do it <laughs> so. well it, it also raises the question of where should these procedures be done and should we train everybody at every someone at every level one trauma center to do this procedure or should they train themselves or hire somebody who knows how to do it or whatever we recently had some feedback in Europe that that's really some 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 of the thought leaders there don't think it's a good idea they they don't like the idea of ribs being done in, in smaller cities or non-university settings they want to capture all that all that stuff and but in in the US it's just not that practical right I mean you're in a small city in Montana and it, it's a thousand miles to a level one trauma center or I think well that was our point to them you know again as Dr. White is saying we received this feedback from a couple of European colleagues in terms of this you know, you guys are encouraging everyone to learn how to do rib fixation, you know, and you should really be regionalizing and focusing on having 
just certain people in certain areas be really good versus you know, this ubiquitous nature. My feedback to that statement was just, well, one, you don't understand how third-party payer systems work, you know, like in, in a European culture where maybe someone could go to anyone, you know, within your country, like if you have the opportunity to see anybody, then yes, that may work. But if I'm in one town, I mean, for example, in Dr. Bauman's town, like there are two competing health systems. And, you know, if your insurance only lets you see someone at Creighton, then Creighton needs to have someone who can fix ribs because they can't go to UNMC and see Dr. Bauman or, you know, something like that. And so I was trying to explain to them how like the United States insurance system works. And that was kind of lost. I mean, that, that fell on deaf ears a little bit, but also just how spread out we are. You know, the fact that here in Salt Lake City, yes, we have a couple different options, but if you don't get fixed in Salt Lake, you know, or in along the Wasatch Front, you know, you're going hundreds of miles before you're gonna find someone that could fix your ribs, you know? And so this idea that, I mean, all those patients in between, having a few centers, you know, I mean, having the Dr. Githens who's four hours away in a small town, but is a good option for those regional patients. Well, you know, they're stuck between Denver and Salt Lake. That's a healthy Well, drive. not only that, I mean, I, when you take just pure quantity of numbers of, of traumatic injuries and surgical skill yeah. sets, how often do we have to do a bowel resection and a repair? That's pretty frequent. We know how to do that. But it's not every single trauma patient. But if you use that same analogy, like I have to know how to repair this injury because I'm a surgeon and my trauma patients can get this injury, I have to be prepared to treat them effectively for this injury. It's the same thing. If you say, oh, I can repair some of your trauma, make sure you have a good outcome, but the rest of the trauma, I probably can not do it and I'll give you a less optimal outcome. Yeah, that's well said. Yes, if you become too specialized and you only become, you know, the left third toe surgeon, that's gonna be a problem. You need to be able to do a little bit more, you know, and- I always think the left side of root fractures. I don't believe the right side. To me, that's, that's the other side of the coin is being able to more universal. And yes, I am certain, or I know there are members within our society because they reply back to research questions, you know, or to research projects and they'll say, yeah, I have eight to 10 cases to contribute this year. That's very different than what any of the three of you are gonna contribute to a research project. But I still think it's just as valid and just as important that those eight to 10 cases they do are as high quality as the 50 that Dr. Shira is gonna do in a year or, you know, 95, I don't know the number, but I'll pluck any number. It's more than Dr. Aliazza. Like whatever it is, it's double Dr. Aliazza. You think about some of the silly reasons we transfer patients non-trauma related, you know, insurance reasons, family preference, rehab capability, whatever. It just seems tragic that someone, particularly in Phoenix, where there are nine level one trauma centers, that someone would languish in a level one trauma center and not get the proper surgical therapy they need because of some barrier, that you know, a payment barrier or a competition barrier or whatever. It just seems tragic. And Gina, I'm confident you're going to solve that mess. You're going to grab this bull by the horn and you're going to get it. Yeah, you're going to be the yeah. man-eating shark of this problem. <laughs> so I'm excited to see how that's going to work out. Me too. All right. Well, before we uh, move on to the uh, announcements, I want to Talk for just a minute about Amsterdam. It's a month away. Genus, you're gonna you're coming with us. Tell us your thoughts. Are you excited? Uh, are you apprehensive? What are you thinking about? No, I'm I'm very excited. I um, you know, 
I love travel and being a little bit away because it really allows me to get a lot out of the conversations that I'm having on a daily basis. And especially with CWIS members, I learn so much. And so selfishly, I'm excited for what I'm going to gain every time I am with you guys. I, I feel like I'm smarter. So I am here for all of it. Ditto. Well, I will just make note today we are recording this episode on August 4th and August 4th, 1944 was three days after Anne Frank made her last diary entry. And it is actually the day that she and her family were captured by the Nazis. So I will say it's a notable day, 79 years later. And I, those of us that are going to be there as of Saturday, we're going to the Anne Frank house. So not only am I excited to have CWIS International, I'm going to the Anne Frank house and I am so excited to be able to see this very notable and important historical location. So this is big. This is very big. Fantastic. I, my heart is a flutter to be able to honor this important location and that important memory in history. Sarah, do you have any announcements for us? Well, I first want to make note, we have not seen Dr. Adam Kay on this podcast series. I think it's been months, right? <laughs> and I wanted to reassure our listeners, he's not dead because there may be rumors. I may have started him. It's really questionable. I don't really know. But I wanted to reassure everyone that in fact, he doesn't hate our listeners. One, he didn't die. Two, that he will be back. He's assured me he will come back to the pod. He's not too cool for the pod. This is his official shame shout out yeah. that we feel the shun. I'm just saying, we feel the shun that each time I plan a pod and he no shows, I note it. Yeah. So are we sure he hasn't spun off and done his own like potting oh, you know since, what? He his, since he got to start here? Do not think that I am not watching carefully because <laughs> there's a possibility he started his own pod. Did he really go to Jerusalem? Right. Know, for, Allegedly, uh, he's, he's been in Israel for was three he doing, weeks. Like, food right. and like, you know, seeing the sites and like doing his own like right. kind of foodie podcast or something. That's what I think it is exactly. Yes. Allegedly, he was in Israel for two weeks or it's the launch of his official new pod. I don't know. He's going to come back with vengeance if we don't quit beating up on him. So let's. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> At least he'll come back. Whether it comes back with a vengeance or not, at least he will return to the pod. In any form, we just want Dr. K back. We don't care. <laughs> right. We miss you. Please provide proof of life, Dr. K, because we're very sad. Anyway, I'm going to move on now to the rest of the updates. We do have a webinar by the amazing Dr. Susan Cartico on Wednesday, August 16th, which will be all about how to get your manuscript in the best possible shape for either the CWIS Special Edition or for the Journal of Trauma or for SACO. Either way, if you want to be part of the CWIS Special Edition, this is your opportunity to learn more and come to that webinar. Or even if you're not in the CWIS Special Edition, you know what, just in general, like good tips for publishing in JTAX and SACO. So come and hear Dr. Cartico and all the amazing things that she has to say. Also, I know especially JTAX has had some updates as of late in terms of conflict of interest, and we wanna make sure that we're all, you know, just right at the cutting edge of that. So be sure to be there Wednesday, August 16th, two o'clock mountain time, 
we will see you there. The other thing I will make an announcement about as far as events is case review, Wednesday, August 23rd. This one will be a morning event. As our listeners know, we rotate through. So this one is the early morning here in Mountain Time Zone. So it'll be 7 a.m. Mountain Time. You can do the time zone calculations. And we have terrific cases. I think we're actually full for August, but we definitely have space available in September and subsequent months. So if you have a case you wanna share, please let us know. Other dates coming up to please be aware of, September 1st, Bill Long Award nominations are due. And November 1st, Abstracts for the Summit are due. So please make sure that you have those in and submitted um, accordingly because those deadlines, one, are firm and you don't wanna miss them. And have me have to send you a snarky note back that says you knew the date and we are not accepting it because I will do it. She will. And I think those are all of the announcements. Oh, other than CWIS International, as we have talked about in Amsterdam, you can come get some good chest wall injury information. You can come visit the Anne Frank house with us. Sarah, is there there still spots? Registration is still available. We have a few slots left. It is, if you wanna make your Labor Day weekend a long Labor Day, it is the Monday and Tuesday of Labor Day, if you are familiar with that here in the US. So it is Monday, September 4th and Tuesday, September 5th. So just uh, schedule yourself for a long weekend. Beautiful time to be in Amsterdam or to be in the Netherlands. No tulips, but lots of other stuff, canals and bikes and beer yes. and wooden shoes and cool stuff. Well, and CWIS. And us, and we're gonna be there. Oh, and another side note, I finally you know, was able to catalog all of the final inventory of things that had been sold from the summit and da 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 da, you know, got everything packaged up and all the inventory put away. And we had almost no t-shirts left. So I actually just placed the order this morning for all new t-shirts. You guys, we have all new colors coming and they are fabulous. And the girl t-shirts are V-necks this time. Wow. And they're this deliciously soft, like they're those- Like low neck? Like they're called perfect blend. <laughs> and they're, no, inappropriate. They are <laughs> these like deliciously soft shirts. They're men's and women's, thank you. Deliciously soft, ooh, I like that. Yes, they are. Feel the warm embrace of Seawis when you wear it. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. And these will be your favorite t-shirt you've ever worn. So you're welcome for that. Excellent. And they're new colors and they're amazing. So it's time for the final stitch, everybody. Final stitch, I'll go first. But Gina, what some people don't know about you is you're a wound expert. And I have this non-healing thing right here on my elbow. Can you see it? Can you see that right there? <laughs> is that where Sarah did that rockectomy on you? I did do a rockectomy right there. Thank you very much. I crashed my bike a year ago. I'm concerned there might be a foreign body in there because it just won't heal over and then it festers. What do you think of that? Some sort of radical excision or just ignore it or what should I do? Wound valve. I used a sharp and I tried to cut the rock out and did my own rockectomy here, you know, in my office. But no anesthesia. a lot. But I'm not sure that I got the foreign body out. Uh, transfer to Phoenix, uh, Honor Health. Okay, I'll get my caseworker right on that. You might need an amputation for that. I know Crypto knows how to amputate limbs, so that's the next step. Supposedly they gave him a scalpel and knows how to amputate people's extremities, so. It could truly be a final <laughs> stitch if that were the case, yeah. All right, your turn, Zach. 
Oh, well, mine, I don't know about you guys, but I like to, you know, put some shameless plugs for some good, um, some good watching. I just finished watching the, uh, the new documentary on, uh, the band Wham. Not gonna lie, it was definitely entertaining. Old, uh, George Michael and, uh, oh, and, uh, dude. Andrew uh, Ridgely, the original, the original. It was, it was a good documentary. I highly recommend it if anyone, uh, wants to get taken back to the 80s and 90s with a little Wham. Oh my goodness, I really hope Dr. Hansen figures out how to slice in some wham at this exact moment in the pod. I hope if he does not, too. If not, everyone right? should just take a moment to pause the pod and listen to a wham song and come back. Wake me up Love it. It was a good, it was only 93 minutes. It's a quick little watch. It was, it was fun, entertaining, you know. Um, it, was a, it was a good time. That's great. All right, Gina or Sarah? The first thing that I think is... I gotta figure out how to get that Seawis rep t-shirts on like a 2T and a child yes. because I make my kids rep everything. We match sneakers, we oh, match yeah. clothes, and so that's my side hustle for those of us that want to force our kids to represent stuff before they can speak up and dress themselves. <laughs> I love it. But since we're talking about the 80s and 90s, my daughter's obsessed with it. She just turned 11, and so uh, she got the most incredible birthday gift I thought I'd share is... Uh, a Walkman. Oh, man. No way. And some cassette tapes. No way. Do they still make cassette tapes, or is she listening to, like, your old cassettes? The best way to listen I to Boy I had to George. order cassette tapes off Etsy. So I ordered her some Boys to Men, over oh, at Carrie, some Wilson Phillips. Oh, she is, man. She thinks that she is so... Well, she is. Did you also buy the Costco-sized battery pack for her? Because that is what she will need to change those batteries every day. Oh, yes. I Listen, I did that. That's fantastic. Yes. Going back, it's like it's vintage. All right, Sarah. Well, I have a Lomi update because the Lomi is, the you know, a continual topic for the pod. I Lomied some lettuce and some oranges that needed a new life. And I put them out in the garden because that's what happens after, of course. And I have been having a little bit of a snail problem in the garden. And I will tell you, it turns out snails like oranges. Suddenly I had 11 snails on this little pile of orange and lettuce loamy dirt. Who knew? Apparently snails can either taste or smell oranges. And suddenly they were all crowding on this little pile of orange loamy soil. So I was able to just scoop them all up and throw them all away. And you know what? The garden's doing a lot better without all those snails. So you're leaving out a detail. Throwing away for you is to toss them in the street so they get run yes. over. Yes, I put them in the street and then I wait for the cars <laughs> to drive over them because I figure if you have plagued my garden and you have put holes in the leaves Fire and you have, detail. yes, then I just scoop them into the street and I feel like it's vindication. <laughs> yes. The judge and executor. Yes. yes, I do that. But this is, I feel like that is the moral of the story, you guys. You don't need pesticides for your garden. You need a loamy and some oranges and you can just rid yourself of, maybe it even works with just like orange peels. I'm not sure if you don't have a loamy, but there you go. Who knew? Very oranges good. and snails like that. It's, this is your organic method for snail removal. This podcast was both educational and fun. You're welcome. Once again, the highlight of my week, Fracture Line. Thank you. And Gina, you were just a terrific guest and it was just a pleasure to have you on today. So thank you. Thank you and for all you do for CWIS. We appreciate it. We will look forward to seeing you in Amsterdam. I will not be wearing wooden shoes unless 
once the moment calls for it. In fact, I probably will wear what you should. All right, guys. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye